This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! dun, dun. dun. Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, a SVU podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kara Clank. I'm the other one, Lisa Traeger. We talk SVU, we talk crimes, we have guests. It's really a jam-packed podcast with a lot of work that maybe we didn't consider before we started the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) JK, we love it so much. So true, so true. Um, But up top, we like to chit-chat, catch up. We've been in different states. Kara, I mean, luckily I got to see you for one little drinks moment last week. But um, really, we've been separate for months. I know. It's like the pandemic again. But JK, we're out in the streets. (laughs) God forbid. God forbid. I, everything's good. Yeah, I went on a, I went on a two week amazing trip with my kids to Vermont and to the the East Coast, saw some family, went to my summer camp. It was awesome. Everything was great. The kids were good on the plane, like, except Rosie peed on herself on purpose in the bathroom and I forgot to bring her extra pants. So she was just butt out the entire, like half of the flight. And one of the flight attendants was like, what happened to your pants? And Rosie was like, <laughs> like, would not keep a blanket around herself. I keep getting in trouble for having Rosie naked from the waist down at different places. Anyway, I wanted to just say one quick thing because I know you have a lot of scoop for me right now. I just caught up watching like four or five episodes of OC last night and I love that show. I am really loving Organized Crime. Not the OC starring Misha Barton. OC, Organized Crime, the Christopher Maloney spinoff. It is so different from SVU. It moves so quickly. They resolve plot lines so quick. I love that. I watch all these shows that are like thrillery and you're like, but what happened to that guy? Well, are they ever going to pay off this one? And I I get that there's like an art to like leaving a lot of different storylines simmering and then getting back to them. No, this show uses all this crazy technology that's probably not even real. They're like, found him, found this girl. Like, Stabler's chasing down hit women. He he just chased a hit woman through the streets through a fashion show. Like, it's crazy. That's free advertisement. They have not paid us. And I'm just telling you guys, get into OC. I'm liking it. Well, you know what? Um, I've been seeing a lot of buzz with people that we know really liking the new um, Selling the OC. It's like a spinning, it's a spinoff of Selling Sunset called Selling OC. And the tweets I'm seeing that it's one of the best reality shows of all time, that it's unhinged and insane, that it's like the best television oh, wow. from people I respect that love uh, that love TV. And so I'm excited. I tried to watch it last night, but I was way too drunk and I just needed Seinfeld. As I ate, um, I found a new Haribo, um, Sour Kicks. They're little sneakers. And no one was, I was like, oh, these are fresh. I'm like, this is a new batch. Like, feel the texture. And everyone I was with was like, 
wow, this is the freshest texture ever. I go, no, I'm a, like a pro on gummy candies. Like, this is good. Such good flavors. If you see the Haribo Sour Kicks, they're good. Okay. There's a sour grape flavor. Can you fucking believe that? It's, wow. it's good. Yeah, it was really good. But, so I'm excited to watch that. I... I'm so pumped for Lindsay and Carl from Summer House that they got engaged. I'm so sad that I got into Summer House, but I'm in it and I'm so happy for them. So shout out to Lindsay so, and Carl. I don't watch, but wasn't it like forever her being like, why don't we date? And him being like, no, no, no. And then they finally get together. No, there's um, a little more nuance to that, Kara. Right. So they of are <laughs> they are best friends. And then there's one night where he fingers her, but they don't even make out. It's just like a loose fingering. And so then it gets like <laughs> talked about. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it gets talked about in the house and he's like so scared that it's spread. And he's like, hey, I don't want you to be mad, but everyone knows about the fingering. And she goes, I don't care. And so then they end up going on a date, but they are scared because their friendship means a lot to them. And then the date, like, it just doesn't work out because she's like, okay, well, let's do this. And he's like, it, it, this is just too much for me. But the other layers are, she is in her 30s, wants children. Like, she's ready to settle down. Yeah. Um, for him, uh, throughout these seasons, sadly, his brother died of an overdose. Oh. And it was really sad. I mean, sh she's the first person he went and told. Like, they are, they have truly been very great friends. Um, and he had to then come to terms with his own sobriety. And so he's been, like, work focusing on his sobriety. Um, a couple relapses, but he's really good. He's been sober now for a while. And so then... By the end of the last season, they were, she was just like, listen, like, I, I have feelings for you. Like, I don't know what you want. And he goes, let's do this. And they've been together ever since. And she stopped drinking to like help him as well. And so they're both kind of sober right now. And they got engaged and it's awesome. And the thing with her, a lot of her storyline is like the other girls and people judge her because she is a drunk slut. And, <laughs> They're all mad at her about it. Like, one person shamed her for partying because she had had a miscarriage. So, what? like, because she had a miscarriage, they were like, what is this, a brothel? And she goes, what's this double standard? Like, you're not you're not mad at Luke. Like, he's a slut just like I am. And the girl goes, well, he didn't have a miscarriage. Like, this is the way people speak to Lindsay. It's so fucked up. And she just is who she is. And everyone always has an issue. Like, one of her ex-boyfriends, like, she gets drunk and likes to take her titties out. And he would be pissed. And it's like, Carl just loves her for who she is. And, like, they just are really cute. And, and I just can't believe that, like, two people that, like, were on this show about, like, debaucherous, like, hooking up are now, like... We found monogamy and sobriety together on this show. <laughs> like, yeah, and they amazing. lived in the same building in Manhattan. And like, also like while Lindsay was, you know, tr after this miscarriage, like trying to have a great summer, they also like hate, like the, there's one really toxic relationship on that show, Kyle and Amanda, and it's like horrific. It's like- Kyle went to my college. Oh my God. He's a couple Julia years. Julia know this? Is our friend, do our friends know this? I think I've told her. Kyle is a two or three years behind me. I think he was a freshman when I was a senior. So their relationship is horrible. Like before the wedding, they're crying. They don't fuck. They fight all the time. He, he She breaks his toilet. Like I gotta watch fucking Summer he House, legit, man. They have like a business together. It's like Lover boy. Ice. Yeah. And so eventually he's like telling one of her friends, he goes, we have nothing in common except the business. 
Like, they are the most uh, awful relationship. She's always crying. They're like, they never look like they're having fun. And yet the whole time they're like, Lindsay, are you even happy? Your life is a mess. Your life's a mess. Like, you're such a this and that. And she's just like, I own my own PR firm. I'm hot as hell. Like, what's going on here? And so I just love that, like, they came up out on top of like having this like yeah. beautiful relationship and I wish them all the best. And so I, I mean, I only started watching the show maybe two and a half weeks ago. I am now ah! like, <laughs> I would die for Lindsay Hubbard. That's I would die for her. <laughs> I cannot believe you started two weeks ago. I thought you were like, I, I knew you were a, like a OG summer no, house probably person, like but- three weeks. So yeah, ah! yeah. <laughs> I These was watching it. extremely like- important to me for the last three weeks of my life. Yes. Well, because, you know, my best friend uh, lives here um, and we don't see each other that often and we both are TV people. So there were a couple days where we did not leave the couch and we watched Summer House for like 10 hours a day. Oh, wow. Minimum to be honest. I love a day where you can just watch TV all day. It's so fun. My husband doesn't like to binge, as you know. (sighs) But yeah, so I'm just like really happy for them. Um, Also, we had to talk about... Bodies, 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 this New York Times thing. I can't believe you haven't. Um, this sounds like the new cat person. Remember that like article called Cat Person that everybody was talking about? And then there was like the oh, other, no. like there's all this these like articles, like, and everyone's like, have you, have you read Cat Person? Like, no, this is different. So basically it's a horror movie, like Clue Who Done It, but with like Gen Z vibes. Rachel Sennett's in it. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, I've seen yeah. a trailer. Yeah, it looks amazing. I can't wait to see it. So this uh, critic, arts critic at the Times, wrote in her review, uh, they wrote, 95% of this movie is an advertisement for cleavage. It's all about titties. And one of the actresses from that show did not, uh, from the movie, didn't like that. So privately DM'd this critic and just wrote, maybe if you weren't so focused on our tits, you could have watch the movie because it's good. Like something like that. Like, you know, instead yeah. of looking at her tits, watch watch the movie. So this critic decides to publicly show everyone this private DM, but still spin it like they're like a victim where they're like, these power dynamics, I will not be treated like this. And it's like, it was a private DM. Like you're making it public. There is no power dynamic. Yeah. And also the power dynamic, it was a black actress. Like it were, what power dynamics are you yeah. actually talking about? And and I don't know either of your names. None of you, I don't, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. what power? So she, and then people start piling on her because she's so annoying. And then a TikTok unsurfaces from a while ago where she's just like, five tips on how to be a successful writer. And then the first one's like, have talent. I'm just talented. I don't know what to say. I don't even have real formal training. Like I just said, I'm an incredible writer. Two, have an amazing point of view. You don't have to have the right point of view, but I have a very strong point of view on arts and criticism. And like keeps just talking about, she's like, my therapist would love how positive I'm being about myself because I never say nice things about myself. So she's talking about like how to be a writer, how she's so good, how her first article was barely edited and made the cover of the arts and culture section. Comes out, her father works at the New York Times. (laughs) Her father's worked at the New York Times for a long time. And like the Nepotism, sports editing. baby. And this person has the audacity to make a thing going, I'm just talented. I don't know what to tell you. And then like publishing a private DM and maybe like this actress who cares about criticism, but also she was annoyed. But it, it was so that it blew up. And this girl now has, you know, deleted her TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. She's gone. The she writer. Would, yeah. 
out of she town. She was humiliated. We ran her out of town. Maybe she'll write another article or something, but she was just dragged. And she seems annoying. She sounded annoying. She had a bike hanging on her wall. Like, nothing was <sighs> good about the situation. Oh, my God. Okay, I missed this whole drama, but I did see the trailer for Bodies, 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 and I'm trying to think of where I saw it, but I, it looks good. Yeah, I, I want to see that. I want to see Marcel the Shell. Me too. Um, there's one other one someone said was good. But like, I, yeah, I would love to, because it's so hot here, um, I, everywhere. I would love to sit oh, in a movie. It's going to be in the hundreds this week in LA. I really want to see Marcel the Shell. I know it's going to make me cry. Wait, tell me about your shows at Caroline's really quick before we start our episode. Oh, it was awesome. It felt so cool. I just really felt like the coolest girl in New York, you know, headlining Caroline's and running to the cellar and doing three spots at a night. Like, it was just kind of like, who am I? Like, no, you know, it just felt cool. But the last year, and I met a lot of listeners. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Such cuties, fun photos, like cool people. So the last show, there was a couple and their energy was weird. And we figured out that they had met at the airport that day. <gasps> what? Right. Then there's a group of six women in their 60s, and they've been friends for 50 years. I love so that. So they were doing a girls' trip. They saw Michael Jackson, the musical, in the day, and Lisa Traeger at night. They were going to <laughs> Hamilton, a, a matinee on Sunday. They were just, like, ready to drink. It was awesome. Then there was a couple making out, dressed sexy. So I went, okay, what's your energy? You guys are clearly cheating on people. And they were. <gasps> Because I've, like, used that line before in my stand. And it's usually, like, haha, and then no, there's some no. crowd work. Yeah. But this was, like, legit. And they're both from out of state and flew in to cheat. And uh, so it was just... And then there was a private chef from a yacht, below deck style. So it was oh just... Oh, my um, God. You got, like, really your dream cool. audience. Dream <laughs> audience. Oh, and in the kidding? front, there was a Portuguese family with, like, four or five kids. And the youngest <laughs> kid, I swear to you, was 11 years old. I was just like, what is happening? I've seen kids at Caroline's before, and I'm always like... Like, I've been like, why... I remember there was like a family at a show that I did at Caroline's that was like from Sweden or Finland or something. And they were all just like had all their kids with them. And I was like, what is going on? It was wild. But I love it. Yeah. So it was super fun. And um, you can fucking buy weed at the bodegas, dude. Really? You know, in LA, it's like the, you know, uh, who Sean Patton was explaining this to me. Like, you, I like comparing it. We're in LA. It's like, it is like the Mac store, you know, they go in, there's cases and ID. It's yeah. official. There's yeah. taxes. Here you like go to a smoke shop or a bodega and you go, can I get a pre-roll? And then they take a Ziploc bag filled with pre-rolls and then you buy one for $15. Oh, like Lucy's. It's like selling Lucy's. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You can just buy a vape at from your dude, from the dude that you've been buying, you know, lighters and sandwiches from. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Now we just have to let everybody out of jail that's in jail for dealing weed. Um, uh, if the, I saw, I've seen two robberies this week. Jesus. Like someone running and then someone chasing after them trying to get their stuff back. Fuck. Wow. Yeah. New York's lit up. Um, well, listen, we have to start the episode because we could chat all day, but I really quickly wanted to just remind everybody that we are going to be on tour starting very soon. Uh, I think this week, when you're hearing this episode, we will be in San Diego at Mike Drop Comedy on uh, September 15th. That's a 
Thursday, come see us. We loved our last show in San Diego. We're doing a different episode. Uh, and then on September 16th, which is a Friday, we will be at Los, uh, the Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles. But listen, I don't think we've made it clear enough that that is a live streamed show. That will be our only show from the whole tour that's live streamed. You can watch that from anywhere, anywhere in the US, I think. I don't know about um, other countries. I will check that out. But you can live stream the show, watch it from anywhere. We're going to do an episode that we've never done on a live stream before um, and that we've probably never done at a live show. So you're going to get to watch an awesome show and uh, watch it from the comfort of your own home. And that link works for a week. So just, you know, get a tick and watch it at your convenience and watch it over and over again if that's what you're into. Then the following week or two weeks later, we're going to be in Texas. Woohoo! We're going to be in Austin on the 27th, Dallas on the 28th, and Houston on the 29th. Please come see us, guys. We're so excited to be touring and coming to see all you guys. And our live shows are so fun. I'm not just saying that because I plan them and participate in them. They are super fun. And that's what all of our listeners tell us afterwards. And hurry up because someone already wrote that the VIP tickets in New York sold out already. Yeah, those are gone. Like people so, are, are buying ticks. So yeah. Not to get out there and get but. your tickets, bring friends, bring someone who doesn't even watch SVU. I'm telling you, the drag alongs that come to these shows always have a great time. Oh my we God, Kara. What? I had a spinach artichoke crab dip yesterday. I've had that before. It's amazing. Did it change your life? It was really good. <laughs> come eat crab dip with us on our tour. All right, let's start our episode. Bye. It's time for Countdown. Kara, I would say we've been wanting to do this episode since we started. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, to me, it just feels like a huge classic, but it is supremely fucked up. It seems like it's like season two. They know people like their product, and now they're like, let's just do the most fucked up stuff possible. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it is very scary. Spoiler alert, Jim Gaffigan's in this one, so obviously we've, you know, that's exciting. (laughs) It's just like... An incredible episode. So I'm really excited to do this. Um, We start with commotion. There's gridlock on the streets of New York. Um, Steam, trucks, construction, arrows, you know, lights, a lot of stuff's happening. And the camera's panning. um, And behind all the blinking lights and trucks, there's an upper-class couple, I would say, right? They look kind of rich. Um, Unhappy, you know? Um, Unhappy. The man is driving. He's in a bow tie. The wife's the passenger. They're bickering. The man decided to take a shortcut. The wife calls him an idiot. He goes, you took too long to get ready. You look like shit. No, uh, but they're fighting. So then because he wants to get to wherever Bella they're going to on time the wife goes why because you want to see your girlfriend and it's like do you know he's cheating is the girlfriend at the ballet like what is this so (laughs) I kind of I right yes that I thought that was kind of funny they like stuck in just like you know why because your girlfriend's gonna be there like whoa harsh but like also don't you feel like you've seen this opening before I feel like I've seen two rich people trying to get to the opera ballet the gala, the fundraiser, whatever, and like they get they they encounter a crime. Am I crazy? Well, yeah. No, if there's, you know this, Kara. There's only a certain amount of ways you can find a victim. <laughs> know. You know what I mean? There's I a know. walk through the bush. A walk but I through, always feel like it's like unhappy rich people bickering when they stumble across a victim. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, no, it has happened before, and hopefully, a psycho is listening that can pinpoint it and send it our way. <laughs> He doesn't like being accused of having a girlfriend or that his girlfriend's at the ballet, but I would also want to be at the ballet on time. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Whatever. Let's get there. Um, then we see somebody fall out of a truck and yelp, and the man is looking away, and the woman's like, something fell out. The doors are open. Let the truck driver know. So the man, like, you know, lowers his window to start hollering at the driver, and the truck just peels off. He doesn't give a shit, just, like, so fast. And then it's like, do they go or wait? What do they do? Ah, you know. And then a little hand reaches up, and we see a little hand, and they stop the car, and now we're at the hospital. And like, how did the van get away? New York City, they're in gridlock and suddenly the van's like, I've got a mile to run away. <laughs> like, um, So yeah, that's that. So now we're in the hospital. Benson and Stabler are, well, Benson's in a Stabler style jacket, which is wild. It's like lamby fur in the middle and a denim yeah. on the outside. I've never seen Benson in a jacket like that. And then, be- and then Stabler's behind her and then a man with thinning hair and a tie is giving us the scoop. It's Sophie Douglas, eight. Um, he says, and the man is a cop. He's not a doctor. I didn't know. I just saw an outfit, but then there is a badge. So she went <laughs> missing three days ago. They thought it was a custodial, like, snatching, but I guess it's not. There's no ransom. But Benson and Stabler call him out on a, like, and they're like, you're a fuck up. It was not, it was a stranger. I don't know. They get into a fight and I don't actually know what it's about. And I did watch it a few times. Yeah. Do you know what they were fighting about? uh, Yeah, I think it was just like, you got, you know, it's what we talk about all the time. You guys were like convinced it was this custodial snatch and so you didn't like look into any other leads and like it was not that, you know? Yeah, You guys are married to your narrative that you get stuck on and then you, you know. Yeah, because Stabler's never done that. Right, right. So, um, yeah, but early seasons of SVU, they're really fighting with the other cops a lot. They're trying yeah. to prove themselves. Um, so a rape kit is happening and it's a child and it's a sad exam and it's kind of uncomfortable and weird. And this like, you know, the detectives stroll in as this doctor's like Q-tipping this child's vagina. It's like very <sighs> uncomfortable. It's like, can you have waited two seconds? This is insane. Yeah, that I don't you're really know why they had the to room. go in during that very vulnerable moment. Yeah, yeah. it seemed weird. <laughs> um, so the doctor continues the exam and they sneak away like five feet away whispering and the doc start, starts taking pictures and then Olivia introduces herself to Sophie who's so cute um, and Benson is blowing bubbles and while she's distracting her, Maloney is talking to the doctor who's explaining the injuries. Not good. Definitely rape. Stabler and Benson make sad eye contact as bubbles float past Benson's face and then the credits. Um, so now we're back with some squad time, whole team, and Benson and Stabler are filling them in, and Cragen's in suspenders, classic. So the talk screen did come back positive for tranquilizers, not good. The only thing I think about when I think of tranquilizers, I always just think of old school. I think of Will Ferrell getting tranked and being so funny in yeah. old school. Well, that's a trank dart, right? Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. It was like meant for one of the animals of the kids' party, and he <laughs> yeah. goes down, and it's like... It's kind of like the Quaalude scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street. It's just like such good acting. Like, it's so fun. <laughs> Is that where he goes, I love you, man, but you're crazy. Like, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like say that all the time. <laughs> what a good movie. I old love school. it. I love old school. I love old school. We're going streaking in the quad. All right. <laughs> So, um, the, the, the white van, duh. 
Okay, we yeah. know that already. Um, the two witnesses sat behind the van for 20 minutes and couldn't give them one number of the license plate and Benson's pissed. And it's like, relax. Like, you want us all memorizing plates constantly while we're in traffic? Like, I can't imagine being mad at people for not doing that. And by the way, um, it's a pixie cut Benson, if you were wondering. So, um, Cragen... Tr- uh, traffic guards them all and sends them all on their missions. And he assigns Benson and Stabler to interview the girl. Um, And she's like, the mom is not really into that vibe. And Cragen's like, I don't give a shit. Obviously, it's, you know, you'll be sensitive, but we need this information. So we head to the Child Advocate Center of Manhattan on 81st Street, and it's February 10th. And Cabot's there chatting with Stabler, and she's like, what the fuck? How is everyone still here? I was so late. I thought you'd all be gone. And Stabler's like, well, we're having problems with this mother. She's not willing to separate... She's not willing to help us. She doesn't want Sophie talking alone. She's not going to speak freely. And like, the mom is being very annoying, but I get it. She's being protective, but like truly an annoying person. And Cabot's like, fine, just let the fucking mom in. So we're in the room with Benson and the girl. um, And the lamp base, did you notice? No. The lamp, so the lamp in the room, like the post of it is a giant red pencil. (laughs) Perfect for the Lisa Traeger interior collection. That would yes. be like something in your home design collection. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have a really cute lamp. I don't know how I lost it along the way, but the stump of it, what is it called? The stump of a lamp, the pole, the handle. What is the that? base? The base the of base. the lamp. Yeah. The base of the lamp was a poodle. Oh, that's cute. And the shade was white and black polka dots. Oh, okay. It was good, but I've, (laughs) you are impressed. I felt that. Okay. So, you know, she starts asking questions about the man. What color is he? She goes like ours. Hair, she can't remember, but she knows he had scary teeth like a monster. Um, How did she meet the man? And she starts to get really emotional. She saw a puppy and it's like, girl, we can all relate. You know what I mean? We can all relate to this puppy. I hooked up with a guy one time who told me he had a puppy back at his apartment. And then he didn't? He did. Oh, okay. Just saying, it's a pretty easy way to get someone to go with you. Yeah, she feels guilty and like she's dumb, but it's like truly it could work on any of us. Yeah. Um, She didn't want to get in the van um, and she doesn't actually want to talk about it anymore. And then on a tiny TV in the waiting room, uh, Stabler Cabot and the mom are watching and the mom is like, you heard her. She wants to stop. It's too much. And Cabot goes, we don't care what you think. Um, And, you know, they're trying to explain to her. It takes time. We don't want to rush her. And the mom suggests taking her and Stabler talks um, and is like, like talks through the monitor thing and is like, hurry up, you know, there's the mom's being a bitch. So Benson starts pushing her to get the info of the place, a street sign, anything. And Sophie responds that he didn't talk until the room. And he said that it was her party day. There was balloons and stuff, but it was grim and not a real party um, because there was no friends there. She said there was cupcakes and punch and then she fell asleep. And when she woke up, he was standing above her and he said, it's time for picture day. And she had to wear lots of costumes like a princess mermaid ballerina and she wanted to dress herself but he had to help her anyways and that's when the mom freaks out and is like ah! um, and Stabler stops her and is like we need to do this and Cabot's like focus focus and the mom starts crying and doesn't want her to have to relive this and Stabler's like don't you want us to find him and she's like I want you to kill him okay so let us work <laughs> so we continue What's the next day, they ask. And Sophie says, it's my special day. And she had to be really clean, so she had to take a bubble bath. That sucks. And then she gets up and walks into the corner, Blair Witch style. And she then sadly says, it's like, all my fault. And Benson reassures her it's not. She faces away from her and cries, and it's really cute. She has little bangs, and, you know, she she just, he had more puppies in the van. 
And she starts to cry. And Benson's like, I like puppies too, girl. Uh, <laughs> and she climbed in and that, you know, bam. And she's scared her mom will know about it. And Benson is like, he tricked you. And she says, nope, I broke the rule. She just wanted to see the puppies. And the mom runs in, they hug, they embrace in a real way, but she denies any more questioning. And they're taking her home now. And they're all mad at her. And Cabot goes, who cares? I have legal recourse. I'll get that bitch. So Stabler says he wouldn't put his girls through this. And then he turns to the women and goes, you wouldn't get it. Um, and so what do we do now? So I guess we have to go canvas. So Benson ho- um, hopes that Munch and Finn are having a better time with the van lead um, than they're having talking to Sophie. So we cut to our duo in a car and Finn is eating. I love that. Um, but he's not satisfied. He wants a fortune cookie and he's looking and Munch is like, I said no fortune cookies because they're stale. And it's like, who gives a shit? It's for the <laughs> fortune. What? The, the cookie is st- like... I can't I love, believe you took I love away fortune fin- cookies, of even course. if they're stale. I love how they taste. Oh, <laughs> controversial I, opinion. I love them. Oh yeah, I don't need to eat them at all. But of course, I want a fortune. I know I want the fortune, but I also want the cookie. I'm telling you, it's weird. I just like the way they taste. It's fine. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do. It's not that weird. <laughs> okay, so but <laughs> okay, but for Munch to take away that opportunity for Finn bothers. You me. don't get to choose for him, Finn. Uh, uh Munch. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're at a man's uh, a man's van garage spot, and his name is Oliver, a.k.a. Ollie Jolly, a.k.a. Squiggles the Clown. <laughs> and he molested kids. He was hired to entertain, obviously. So they exit the car to get this guy, and as he leaves his car, this is where Jim Gaffigan appears. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, and he has the whitest eyebrows. I don't think I've noticed, like, how white his eyebrows are, and it does make me uncomfortable. Get some eyebrows, bro. Yeah, he is very blonde. Yeah, very blonde. Um, and he's like, hey, who are you? And it's like, bro, you know they're the cops. Like, who else can these two people be? And they're, you know, it's a red herring. It's a red herring. We know this. But he says that he was in Connecticut painting houses all day and that his business is legit. And they're like, house painting or raping? Um, Like, he's going to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. I was raping. But (laughs) the sign for the business on the van is a magnet. So it is an unmarked white van. And they're like, we have to look inside. He tries to fight it, but they're going to go in. And Munch is wearing a Hasidic-style black hat with a hint of a Leonard Cohen hat in the mix of it. (laughs) And asks Ollie if he's been up to his old tricks again. And he says no. He keeps saying that he learned his lesson at Sing Sing and he knows all about impulse control, but of course they don't trust him. They do not care and they will be looking into the van. And when they go into the van, there's clown clothing. He violated his parole. They found the balloons and they're like, we're going to dust for fingerprints and bring him in for a lineup. So start talking, bozo. He says, no, I didn't give a girl a party, but it's like he won't give an alibi that would help him. And so... What what's going to go? What's happening? Mm. So Benson and Stabler break in with something they found going through his belongings. Interesting. Um, and it's like, a th- it's like a calendar and all the children's events are circled. And he says, that doesn't mean anything. And they're like, we're detectives. Um, so we called all these places and everyone saw you and you were seen at these county fairs and you've been gotten. And uh, But he does have his alibi, but he was breaking his parole and being at town fairs with children. So, you know, He's going to get in trouble, I'm sure. For some reason, when I look back on this episode, I always think Gaffigan is the bad guy, but he is the red herring, yeah. He is. It's just because the other guy is blonde as well. And like, you know, you also, you, with eyebrows that you can't really Yeah, but I I remember being like, Gaffigan doesn't really have like fucked up teeth, which is a huge part of this episode. So I wonder if they just gave him like a grill. 
a bad teeth grill. Well, no, I don't think he had to have bad teeth. No, I know. In my mind, that's what I would think because I always thought he was the bad guy, but he's not. I was creating a full thing that was not real. The, man, the Mandela <laughs> effect? Yes, yes. Um. So anyways, they say the term touchy-feely games. Uh, Benson says Connecticut PD does want a word with him. So they ditch his ass and he's going to go back to Sing Sing for um, hanging out with kids at the ta- the county fair. But I don't think I've ever been to a county fair. Well, me neither. But like, and when I was in Connecticut, I never remember there being a county fair, but there were lots of fairs in the summer, like lots of carnivals where they would show up for just two days. Like I remember I would always go to one called St. Leo's. They were big at churches and they were so fun. I loved fairs so much. Okay, great. Perfect time to go and find kids. Yeah. Um, So back of the squad, they're all meeting up and Finn hands Olivia a note that says that the mom wants Sophie to have more healing time and doesn't want her chatting yet. So Benson suggests, like, let's call it a day then. It's 8 p.m. Like, peace out. They all say, hell yeah. So then Stabler's like, oh, I'll have time to go to the toy store and buy a gift for the twins' birthday. And Kathy's not going to believe it that I bought these kids the gifts two days early. And Benson gets on her style and starts like having flirty chats and making plans for some like sexy dinner time with a guy named Michael. And Munch asks, how's Mr. Perfect? And she goes, I mean, I've only met him once. We'll see what happens. And Munch doesn't have any plans, but who knows, the night is young. So the whole squad piles into the elevator to have their nice night off. Then boom, Craig and blocks the door from the elevator and says, everybody stays. Man in white van grabbed another girl. So they all pile back out and they start to work. Now it cuts to Munch at a bodega talking to some men. Um, and they explain this guy was American, six feet, drunk. He says that the teeth of the man were very unfortunate, like Austin Powers. And then Munch asks for the footage from the security tape. It's a broken camera. And he, the guy says it's better than nothing. And it's like, I don't know. It is nothing. <laughs> but... um. The guy also paid in cash, but we're going to try to get, you know, um, fingerprints off of the the cash. Um, and something important, he asked for $2 of his change to be in quarters. So that's going to be a clue. And then Finn is talking to a man with a violin case, talking about, you know, he heard a smash of glass. And he he's, so he's explaining what he sees, but he's also holding his violin in a case. And he keeps calling it her. And he's like... She doesn't like it in the cold. I have to go protect her. Like, he's just, like, truly <laughs> fucking the violin. Um, but he said he saw the license plate, and it either started with an H or a B. I don't believe that's helpful information. Um, so Munch meets uh, Leather Daddy Finn outside, and they start discussing the quarters and mapping out the attack and the struggle. Um, and so, basically, Miss Guzak, she left Kirsten alone in the car, and she, and then the guy saw it was an opportunity thing, I think, and he grabbed the girl, dropped the beer, and that's that. It was not a planned snatch, uh, but he saw an opportunity. And then they see a payphone, and they ask the tech to dust it and also to dust all the quarters inside. I bet that has never happened in real life, ever, ever, ever. Um, we're now at the apartment of Charles and Jean Guzak, and she's saying how the car was parked right out front. She left her daughter in the car for just one moment, and the dad's like, fuck it, it's all my fault. I called and asked her to pick up cigarettes, and it is your fault. And then the mom just like was saying, oh, it was so cold. I just thought 
thought it would be easy for her to sit in the car. She's, of course, crying. Benson and Stable are asking for details about seeing anything. And they give her, um, the parents give them Kirsten's most recent photo. The mom is so worried, like, fuck, it's past her bedtime. I hope he doesn't hurt my baby. And Benson pushes, like, come on, did you see anything? And she says, just the open door. That's all she saw. Um, They give her a pic from the last vacation and she has just turned eight. And they're like, we're sure it's the same guy. And Munch is like, what are the odds there are two pedophiles with horrific teeth snatching kids in like New York? Um, But maybe a lot. (laughs) But there are... (laughs) There are so many episodes of um, this show. So Benson is confused why he would risk a grab so soon after the last debacle and like the kid falling out of the truck and everything. And Finn goes, I mean, he was drunk. You know, Sophie was very organized and Kirsten was an impulse grab. Uh, Munch says he's flexible and he's not a first timer, obviously. And Benson is pissed because she's requested certain files and they haven't come yet. And it's 1.30 a.m. Stabler's like, fuck. So picture day starts in eight hours. We have to get moving. And so they all skedaddle to do their work. And now it cuts to past 3 a.m. And they're all still working. And Finn is just looking at (laughs) mugshots of people with bad teeth in the system. His brow is furrowed. He is working hard. Stabler spits out some coffee and Munch is like, hey, I made that. 19 hours ago. So much, (laughs) so much. But when Stabler goes to make more, he flips out at Munch again, like, because um, Munch puts a lid on an empty can. No wonder he keeps getting divorced. Yeah, they're just, but they're all just, I think they're just showing how they're all snapping at each other because it's 3 a.m. and they're all at each other's fucking throats. Yeah, they're testy this episode. Yeah. So then Stabler goes, fine, I'm going to run and get coffee. And Cragen and Munch get their orders in. So Munch, a double espresso. And Cragen, no foam, 2% latte. And then Munch adds a pastrami on rye. What? 3 a.m., pastrami on rye. Like, I get you're going to a bodega. Like, that's what you want from the bodega? No. (laughs) No. Get a turkey sandwich and shut up. (laughs) <laughs> then, before Stabler can leave to get all the coffees, um, a uniformed cop stops him and there's boxes and boxes and boxes of files that Benson's been waiting for. So, we see that Benson's been sleeping in the crib and Stabler wakes her up and she didn't even get her full 30-minute break, but the files are here. She has bedhead. She's messy. She swivels out of bed and it's time to work. It's 8 a.m. They've been working for 24 straight hours. I'm sure you're understanding why this episode is called Countdown. Yes, baby. Um, Kristen has been missing for 12. Finn is in the corner being a very Lisa type person and dripping eye drops into his eyes. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, I am an eye drop queen. (laughs) And then Munch is like, I want some eye drops. And of course, Finn will not share. And he says, that's how you get pink eye. And Stabler, Mr. Bossy Pants, demands Finn gives him, (laughs) gives the eye drops to Munch. I don't remember any of this. Oh my God. The eye drops were just important to me because I saw myself represented. Yes, yes. So it's okay that you didn't, you know, notice this one eye drop squeeze. I also don't think sharing eye drops is the number one cause of pink eye stabler. It's not washing your hands after you shit, just FYI. Sure. But there has to be more. Is the poop thing real or is that just like, it is. It's always poop. Yeah, pretty much. I don't think it's like people that are like, Sharing eye drops and like, when was the last time you touched the eyedropper to your eye? Like, I don't know. I, don't I would. I don't like to share mascara or like eyeliner or anything like that. Sure. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. But I think that it's mostly nine cases out of ten. It's poop. 
<laughs> well, my favorite eye drops are the refresh, and they come in like little vials that are like tiny plastic. Like you get yeah, like disposable. Yeah, disposable. I like those, yeah. and it's like a little trail I leave behind. It's like a bobby <laughs> pin. It's like you know I've been around if there's little eye drop things everywhere. <laughs> I just don't take off my makeup at night, and it does cause a lot of problems for my ducts. Okay, so Benson and Stabler are doing um, a super speed walk and talk, and they're like, we need to talk to Sophie again. We know the mom said she needed more time, but that's before he snatched another girl. We have to help her. So they go to the Douglas residence and she's being so difficult. And she's like, she told you everything she remembers. And it's like, well, how do you know that? And she starts rattling off, off all the trauma symptoms that her daughter is suffering. And it's like, yeah, we know, but like, let's save the girl. And she does not care. Just another bit of evidence how being a parent does not make you a better person. She does not give a shit about this other child being taken. And so Stabler says, we'll get a judge to order you. And she goes, well, that's just what you'll have to do. That's kind of a drink game thing. I do love when people like this little exchange throughout the history of SVU. I enjoy it. Cabot and opposing counsel are pleading their cases in chambers to Judge Petrovsky, and she is listening intensely. The mom thinks it's cruel, but Petrovsky orders a chat, and the mom cries, and it's like, relax. She's safe, and you need to help this other person. So now we're back chatting with Sophie. Um, and now I notice there's an ice cream-shaped rug on the floor. So this oh really my. is a fun little investigation room for children. <laughs> Um, the pencil lamp is in this scene as well. Benson is so clever and slick and is like, well, do you ever order pizza? Like, what's the name of the pizza box? Cool. So now that you're kidnapped, like, what did you, you know, did you get takeout? Like, did you see where you ate food from? And she shakes her head and says, no, all they ate was cupcakes, fruit punch, and candy corn. And that's it. No dinner. And she asks, like, was there anything with a name on it? And she goes, oh my God, yes, there was a streamer at the party and it had my name on it. So what else was at the party? We got balloons and he blew them up with his own, what is it, helium tank machine? And he talked like a cartoon. Oh, is that what whippets are? I, I mean, yeah. No, I, I think whippets are what go into like whipped oh, cream nitrous. and like other kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like nitrous. Yeah, yeah, I like whippets. Um, yeah. but helium, if you suck it, it doesn't do anything because I do it all the time whenever oh, there's a balloon around. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just like a fun voice. Just makes your voice like a chipmunk. Yeah. Yeah, cute. I mean, you don't even need helium. You just killed that. <laughs> So now we're outside with the crew. It's a rainy day. And they're like, oh, he went shopping for the streamer after he had the girl. So let's figure out, like, how many party stores there are where you can rent a helium tank and all of that stuff. And then Stabler, again, is on this facade that's so delusional where he's like, great, and I'll pick up some decorations for the twins' birthday party. And it's like, <laughs> in what world is Kathy making you responsible for this? Like, just what? stop lying to all of us and yourself. So they're at Aladdin's party supplies and the worker knows him. And again, the bad teeth come up again. He did get a helium tank. He paid cash because now they have mini tanks and you don't have to rent a big one. He comes in every few weeks for the seasonal candy. Ding, 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 candy corn. I like the like little mush, the pumpkin candy corn more than traditional candy corn. I'm a huge candy corn fan. I know people think it's gross, but I love it so much. I love it. I just would rather have the pumpkins. Yeah. I like a mix. I like the candy corn with the pumpkin. But do you like the candy but corn I with don't the chocolate? Like the, which I think is called, I'm not going to say it. I what? don't like but the candy corn. I think it's called Indian corn. But oh. I don't know if you're allowed to say that anymore because it's like Native American, not Indian. Like, yeah, I don't like the chocolate corn. But when you, but now they call it harvest corn. Harvest corn. Okay, we got the right word. <laughs> we got the right word. If you like chocolate, 
candy corns. It's harvest corn. Thanks yes. for the investigative reporting, Kara. Back to you in the studio, Lisa. <laughs> Back at the office and everyone is working hard. Benson's date calls and she's like, sorry, bro, I gotta go. Wait, did you see the Sam Morell clip that he posted on his Twitter during yes. Pittsburgh? <laughs> so um, as comedians, sometimes when you're on the road, you have to do morning um, television or radio as press to sell tickets. And um, on morning news, they asked him why he's a comedian. And he goes, my uncle molested me and that and the, and he keeps talking. I don't remember what else he says but then the the reporters are just like we don't really know where to go from here <laughs> <laughs> he says like he was molested by an uncle and so he needed to like tell dick jokes to forget about it or something like it was it sounds bad now that we're recounting it but it really made me laugh when I watched the clip <laughs> it was funny and his seemed like a purposeful joke I accidentally brought up rape on morning news in Ohio um, <laughs> And I was with Mateo. We were co-headlining Mateo Lane. All these people are very funny. Go follow them if you don't um, already. But Mateo and I were there. And so, like, he starts dying laughing because he uh, he suddenly sees, like, everyone <laughs> losing it and not knowing what to do. The man co-host is, like, turning red and blotchy. And Mateo just can't stop laughing that I said rape, like, at 9 a.m. But... <laughs> I thought it was a funny story. Anyways, um, back at the I office. I wish there was a clip. Oh, my God. <laughs> there is a clip. And I didn't brush my hair because I thought it was radio. So I also looked out of control. I'll post a photo <laughs> from this news program. But I looked wild. Um, I, I did morning news yesterday and I had one eye open. I was like truly no makeup, <laughs> just like sitting there being like, Pix News, come see me this weekend. <laughs> Back at the office and everyone harvest corn. Okay, back at the office and everyone's working really hard. Benson's date calls and she's like, sorry, bro, I'm obviously trying to save a child. So Sailor's on the phone with Kathy, who's of course mad at him. They're at 36 hours. Munch sadly finds three autopsy reports with the same items in the stomach that he fed Sophie. And that is sad, but at least we have clues, information, and we can hopefully get closer to catching this guy. And, but now, okay, wow. That was rude, Kara. JK. <laughs> <laughs> I sneezed. <laughs> but you know what I, I you know what I'm referring to? There's a video on YouTube of Christina Aguilera and yeah. she's like doing an interview and someone coughs off camera and she goes, Did you really just cough right now? Ugh, I can't <laughs> believe you just like truly gets livid that a man coughed. It was the best. So I kind of love doing it to people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so anyways, <laughs> but what's sad about this information is now we know that he kills the girls. So I don't love that. Um, yeah. all three are strangled, all three killed in three days of getting snatched and all three found near the water. Um, uh, but like, how's there no pattern? You know, it's all separate burrows. Um, Sophie escaped from the van on the third day near the East River. So I'm glad she's alive. Like he was obviously going to dump her in the water. Um, Kirsten starts the third day tomorrow. So they all have to stay at work and we have to save this girl. They're going over past cases and pinning on a map where all the girls were found and like the time between snatches decreases every single time. Um, water washes away DNA but they are all white girls in the ages between seven and nine. Finn says the guy is definitely a loner and Munch says he's impulsive and socially marginalized. <laughs> Stabler is like 
is he smart or fickle? Like, we don't, you know, he's bouncing around town. Is this on purpose or is he a maniac? Um, One PP is also bothering them because they want to go public, but Benson is scared if we release too much information, then he'll know that we're looking for him and he'll dump the van or he'll change something or he'll get rid of the girl. And so they really want to tread lightly with what information they release. Um, But... They so she thinks just the composite. So everyone's talking to Cragen, and Cragen says this guy's super rich, ritualistic. So let's release the composite and van, but hold back the time clock. And now a mom of one of the dead girls shows up, and she hands Stabler a photo of her daughter who's dead, and goes, "This was her last school photo. It came in the mail three weeks after she was murdered." And it's like you would think the company would maybe yeah. communicate a little bit. <laughs> It's an automated process, ma'am. I'm sorry. The pictures are just going out. Um, and sh- But she wants the uh, sailor to put the photo in his pocket um, when he catches the man. Um, there weren't any leads before, but, you know, she believes in the SVU detectives. Everyone's on edge and needs some sleep. Cragen flips out and yells about, you know... Um, it being a pigsty. And Benson's like, you're the one who said no janitor. And he's like, yeah, Olivia, it's my fault. And it's like, they're all losing it. (laughs) Munch says that they got Prince off the phone, but also like who called. And there was a 10 second call around this time. And it was to Saul Gardner. So they go visit this dude. It's a messy, disheveled man in his 50s. And he's shitting on the detectives and how bad they look. And it's like, you look pretty bad too. But he's denying the call. He said that he was on a date with a girl. They don't believe he can get a girlfriend. Um, They're like, listen, do you have a message? Do you talk? Like, tell us what happened. Uh, Also, this man has been in four SVUs, just so you guys know. And each time he's like a random man. Yeah, he's like always a random man with information. Um, uh, But he's not being helpful. But he's swears he has no idea. So then the next day, the papers hit the stands and the phones start ringing, ringing, ringing. Psychics are calling. People have tips. So Cragen comes in and yells, you four off the phones. We got a DNA hit in the database from Sophie. Cold hit. So it was a sample from another body from five years ago, and that's another victim. And that was actually before he got smart and started dumping in the water. So he left this girl in an abandoned factory. And since it was sloppy and not in the water, they're like, oh, maybe it's close to where he lives in Queens. And so they head to Queens. Um, Stabler's telling Benson how he got nothing for the twins party. <laughs> the runner of the twins party is going to end you, Lisa. You're gonna, <laughs> it's going to drive well, you off a cliff. Because Benson's been with him the whole time. Like, of course she knows you didn't get anything for the party. Like, <laughs> you've been together. It's raining. They have giant folders, like the manila folders. And they go to meet two detectives eating at a diner. I love diners. Um, They don't want to be helpful and they want to play games. Um, And this woman is from Oz. Um, If you are a big Oz person, she was like a correctional officer who raped all of the inmates. She was... An incredible actress, um, Kristen Rhodes. She was iconic. And sadly, she did die in 2016 at the age of 52. Oh, my gosh. Um, she did yeah. look familiar to me. Yeah, she is great. Um, you know, she was a New York actress. A lot of procedurals, cop shows. But Oz, she was a series regular and an incredibly evil character. Um, so, it, Yeah. I can't wait to rewatch Oz. And Sabler's trying to, uh, be, you know, reason with the guys and be kind and, like, we need your help. And immediately these queens, people are so defensive. They're like, oh, yeah, like, we had information but kept it secret because we're lazy. That's what it is. And they're like, we have no time for this bullshit. Benson slams on the table and gives a speech about being on, like, turfs and ticking clocks and help and, like, we're tired. And to me, it's just like, how embarrassing. <laughs> 
like a girl is missing and you're like arguing about turf. Like it's just so humiliating. Stabler's like, listen, you interviewed like 200 people. We we don't have time to interview all these people. Did anyone stick out? So they go through the files to give their favorite options and they're like, anyone with bad teeth? Like what's going on? So they pick three people that they think, you know, that they pinned for the dude. So they go meet one of the guys who's welding. He doesn't have a white van. He's like, I know why you're here and it ain't me, bitch. And so then they go to the next place and it's Dawson's photo studio and to look for Mr. Mills, one of the you know guys in the folder. And another guy's working there and he goes, oh yeah, that guy works here, but he's not here today. And they're looking around. They go, oh, so you do school pictures. And he goes, yep, school pictures are my bread and butter. And Clayton comes and does lights and helps. And then it clicks. The photo he has in his pocket of the dead girl has the same clouds background as the photo backdrop in the studio. And the guy confirms that he took this photo. Holy shit, he uses the school as a hunting ground. Finally, a break. (laughs) He rents a room from an old woman. So they rush to Mrs. Rappaport's house. Guns in the air. You know, they're entering. Empty. ah. So guns, guns, guns. They see a purple balloon. There's a party set up. It says Sophie, you know, how it says Sophie and streamers. It now says Kirsten. Uh, And then the newspaper is in the house. He saw it. He's on the move. Fuck. There's blood. The blood leads to a dead old woman. He killed Rappaport. So we cut back to the precinct where they all fill Craig in and the neighbors say that she goes to Atlantic City a couple times a year and that must be when he does the attacks because she usually goes for four days but she lost all her money so she came home early and he murdered her. Benson and Stabler start fighting and he tells her to take a nap and she says, screw you. And Daddy Craigan's like, break it up. <laughs> and so it's cute. Um, and then he makes Benson go breathe some air and he makes Elliot go talk to his wife. Kathy is there with the twins and, you know, there's hugs. It's cute. Um, And he sends them to Munch, who has pudding cups. And then Kathy and Stabler hug. He apologizes. And of course, she's handled everything for the party. The twins come back and Munch, for some reason, gave them moldy old pudding that was fuzzy. Yeah, like that part really confused me too. I was like, what? (laughs) Like... I don't get that. Um, The twins give Stabler a gift, a toothbrush and a fresh shirt. He hugs them so hard. Benson calls. He goes after, you know, he kisses Kathy and runs away as Kathy is holding the the new shirt in the presents. Like, he's not changing. He doesn't care if he stinks. He has to find this girl. Saul, finally, they like wanted to check back with Saul. They didn't trust him the payphone guy. And what they figured out was he has a pawn shop and he finally admitted that Clayton called him and said that like he needed money, but he was scared to go to the pawn shop. So they're going to meet in a remote area to like do pawn shop activities. Um, And so they decide to do a sting. So uh, Saul's in the front seat of the van and Munch is sitting in the back. um, And he goes, so what does this guy got? Barbie dolls? And he said, oh no, he said there, he knows an old lady with an attic full of antiques and jewelry and he sells it for her. And Munch is like, He murdered her, you idiot. And he's like, oh my God, I thought like, yeah, a thief, but not a kidnapping, raping, killer. And Munch then threatens him and says, if you do anything to tip him off, you're going down for being an accomplice. And he's scared. He's like, what if he shoots me? And Munch is like, I'll live. (laughs) Uh, But there are sharpshooters everywhere and SWAT teams. And then a white van pulls in. But Saul keeps like looking back at Munch and talking. And Munch is like, shut up, motherfucker. Stop. If he sees you talking and looking, he's gonna know. The white van- Sorry, it's like the same vibes as the Lou Diamond Phillips episode where the yes. guy, it's like, shut up, stop fucking talking. Yeah. All you have to do is sit there and pretend like you're doing your normal job. Yeah, I was thinking of the train guy the whole time as well. Yeah. 
And, the, and so the guy in the white van is suspicious and he, you know, they yell out the windows, but no one really moves. And then I think he like notices one of the SWAT team people. So they're about at their jobs as well. Um, and he starts backing up, but the cops are driving in and then he tries to drive forward. More cops. He's surrounded. Um, you're toast, bro. So, you know, freeze, freeze, get your hands up. They take him disgusting ass out of the van, slam him up against the wall and arrest him. And the girl's in the back of the truck and she is alive, thank God, in a princess dress. Stabler gets her and carries her out. She's going to live. Um, and then, you know, our criminal gets put in the cop car. Now we're at Rikers and the client wants a deal. Now this lawyer is played by Frank Deal. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so the client wa wants the deal and the lawyer's played by Frank Deal. I wanted to say it again because it was really fun. So <laughs> he's the FBI guy from Downloaded Child, if you remember. Oh, yes. And yeah, he looks through child abuse images all day on the dark web, and he's been in eight episodes as different characters. We love him. And Cabot says, your client rapes and kills children. The only deal he is getting is a free last meal. But he does have a bargaining chip. There's another dead girl that none of you know about, and the body was never recovered. And Cabot says, I don't care. I have four victims. I don't need a fifth one. So, like, go fuck yourself. I'll get a death penalty with or without. And he says, well, I bet the mother would like some closure. So she's like, tell me the girl's name. And he won't. But he says that she was his first victim. A perfect little princess, sweet as can be. And He's Cabot so yells, gross the way he talks, too. He's like that whisper-talky voice and like, oh, Yeah, he's a creep. We hate him. Yeah. Yeah. We do not love him. So Cabot says, give me her name. And he says, then take the death penalty off the table and I'll shout it from the rooftops. And he is really creepy. If you guys don't watch it and you do want to be creeped out, this is pretty creepy. Um, Cabot asks her, to, uh, you know, the boss, like the head guy, um, for you know, can you approve the deal? And he's like, I'm a public servant. And the public doesn't want this boil on the butt of humanity living to a ripe old age. Um, and this senior ADA guy is played by Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Demon, 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 whatever. Uh, but he has 119 credits. I mean, he was in the blob, like so cool, <laughs> like really acting um, for you know, really decades. He's been in Billions most recently. He has very evil eyebrows. He was in The Walking Dead, a lot of Dick Wolf, and he played opposite Sarah Jessica Parker in Divorce for like four or five episodes as like a bad lawyer. So she's like, think of the mother. And he's like, I'm sure she wants him dead too. And Cabot's like, sure, but she wants to know where her baby is. And he retorts, well, what about all the mothers who want him dead and the city? Even the protesters of the death penalty want him dead. You don't know what she says. Um, so basically... Cabot then brings in Sophie's mom and finally she decides to be helpful and she convinces the man to help them find um, the body of the other girl. And the man is taking it in and she's like, I want him dead, but you got to help this woman. Cue the dramatic music that leads us to um, like a winter deep grave. There's snow and he's in an orange jumpsuit and shackles. It's raining. Benson and Stabler have umbrellas. A little red shoe gets taken out of the hole. He nods, we found the body of the girl who was never found. And then it's Benson and Stabler waiting outside of a home, like walk, you know, waiting to walk up to deliver the news to the mother. The mom opens the door and that's the end of the episode. Ooh, a toughie. It is a toughie and they did a good job. Like this seems like obviously the crime is really horrific and it's about, you know, a terrible person. But I think this one also like how hard a life of the detectives are. Yes, yeah. Even Especially when end. someone is, yeah, like moving fast like that and like they know that there's a timeline and yeah. Yeah, and then having to deliver the news and sleeping and missing your kid's life. So yeah. it's a very like window into the world of a detective. So I appreciate that. 
Yeah, like at one point, Benson goes, the only time I talk to this guy is when I'm calling to cancel. It's like, yeah, that's, you don't have a great social life. No, um, so that was a fun one. I really don't want to know about the crime, but we will know about it. So see you after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back to ruin your day with a horrific real crime. So this episode is based on a Scottish serial killer and pedophile named Robert Black. He had a lot of the classic stuff we see in serial killers. He was born out of wedlock. His mother gave him up. He had multiple foster parents who maybe allegedly beat him. He was a bedwetter. He, he went on to live in like care homes when he was at one care home. He was molested there. Uh, he was obsessed with genitals, putting things up his ass. He was described as antisocial, a loner this without really a lot of friends. escalated quickly. I just want to, I don't want to do like a whole, this guy's whole fucking life. I just want to give you like a quick paragraph on this guy's life and then we move on to the crimes. I mean, you've not even talked for one whole minute and we're already <laughs> putting things up an ass. Like it is wild. Yeah, I mean, but because it's all very textbook. It's like I could go through it all, but you'd be like, yeah, Ted Bundy too. Yeah, like it's all very textbook of what we see with a lot of these people. Antisocial, a loner without a lot of friends, very unkempt, like gross, like not into showering, like, bad hygiene, you know? Like, like not nothing specific about bad teeth, but it talks about how gross he is many times in all my research that he, like, is not um, clean, you know? Interesting, interesting. So, yeah. So, in How 19- embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> in 1963, a seven-year-old girl was playing alone in a park when Black lured her away with the promise of kittens. So, right from the episode. Um, and then he choked her unconscious and masturbated over her body, but he did not kill her. He did not kill her. She was, she lived. And he was arrested and charged with lewd and libidinous behavior. I don't know. You know how they have like so many weird, in, in the UK, it's always like, you've been charged with bobby dagging and, and you know, cuckle shelling. Like you never know what the fuck they're talking about. Like that's like, what. He jerked off above a child. Lock him up. Yeah. Well, here's what happened. He had a psych exam. And the psych exam suggested that this was an isolated incident and that he needed no treatment. Cool. So he just kept going about his day, probably just, yeah, being gross. And in 1966, his landlords found out that he'd been molesting their nine-year-old granddaughter, but they just kicked him out and didn't call the police. Fucked up. Then in 67, he moved in with a married couple and molested their six-year-old daughter, but they went to the police, thank God. And he did get a year in prison for that. So he goes to prison for a year for molesting the six-year-old girl. That's not enough. I know, I know. And then in 1968, he went back he he went back to london and started working odd jobs and building up a quite a large child sex abuse material collection so he he's like obsessed with um you know child sex abuse material so 
Chronologically, his first murder that he committed was Jennifer Cardi. She was nine years old. He kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered her in August of 1981 in Northern Ireland. And she had just been biking to a friend's house. Her bike was found hidden under some leaves. And then her body was found six days later by some fishermen in a reservoir. And she had been, like, drowned and strangled. So then... His second, but but her murder is not attached to him until 2009. So then his second victim was almost a year later in July of 1982. She's 11-year-old Susan Maxwell who's walking home from playing tennis and her body was found two weeks, two weeks later by a truck driver and she had been bound and gagged um, with, they say sticking plaster in a lot of these articles because I'm reading articles that are from like uh, Scottish and Irish and English uh, publications. But I feel like that's duct tape. So correct me if I'm wrong, my Brits. And uh, her underwear had been removed and folded beneath her head. And that suggested that she had been sexually assaulted because a couple of these victims were found so much later that the amount of decomp uh, in their bodies, unfortunately, you couldn't tell that they were sexually assaulted, but like 99% chance they were. And Susan had been in Black's van, alive or dead, for over 24 hours while he finished his delivery route all around Scotland. And then he ditched the body on his trip from Glasgow to London. And then, so this is where it's similar to the episode. This guy is killing people all over the place. And in, in obviously on SVU, they, they condense it just to the five boroughs. But that's why it's like hard to find him. And in this one, it's like, it's Glasgow. It's, it's like all over the UK. Um, and honestly, later, other parts of Europe. But we'll get to that. Um, Black's second victim, uh, third victim, excuse me, is his youngest victim, who was five years old. Her name was Caroline Hogg. She went missing while playing outside of her house in Edinburgh, the suburbs of Edinburgh, in um, 83. So almost a year later. So it's feeling like he's doing it once a year, kind of like how the this guy in this episode was only doing it once or twice a year when he had, like, the opportunity. The search for Caroline was the largest in Scottish history at the time. So pretty huge. They had 2,000 local volunteers, 50 members of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, and... Uh, her disappearance was all over the media, and eyewitnesses had seen a sketchy man wearing glasses watching Caroline while she played. They also saw him follow her to a nearby fairground. Why no one said anything, I don't understand. Um, and people saw them both sat on a bench chatting and him paying for her carousel ride and watching her ride it. I need a shower. Um, anyway, and then they found her body about two weeks later in a ditch, and cause of death could not be determined because of the extent of the decomposition as well. And the lack of clothing suggested a sexual nature to the crime. So the cops um, figured out pretty quickly that Susan and Caroline's murders were connected. And um, like I said, they didn't connect Jennifer's till 2009, but they connected the first two. And with the locations being far apart, they that made them think, oh, this must be a truck driver or someone who works like, you know, covering long distances for their, for their living. And it's not it kind of works into their life that they're going from like, you know, country to country. So they connected these two girls because they were both likely sexually assaulted. They were both bound and they were both wearing white ankle socks at the time that they were taken. Ugh. So they quickly formed a task force and the guy who uh, headed that up was a guy named Hector Clark. I think he actually just died last year. And he was an assistant chief constable from Northumbria who took over the investigation. So remember how I talked about in the Yorkshire Ripper case, how they had this like super old school analog system of getting tips. Like they had paper cards and everybody ridiculed them and was like, you guys fucked this up because they just had thousands and thousands of paper cards and they got ripped to shreds for it, like in the press. Hector Clark did not want to look like them. And so he was like, we're using computers this time, bitches. And so they formed a Holmes desk 
database. That's H-O-L-M-E-S that um, all the forces could use. And I guess it was like really pricey, but it's really good that they did it because many unsolved crimes that were totally unrelated to this one got solved because of all the information they were putting into the database about like suspects, vehicles, blah, blah, blah. So now it's March of 1986. It's three years after Caroline Hogg's body is found and Sarah Jane Harper, age 10, goes missing from a suburb in Leeds in, in England. And the police are looking for a white Ford van and they say that the suspect is possibly a balding, stocky white man. Who isn't? Uh, three weeks later, her body was found in a river 70 miles from where she went missing. And they determined that she had died between five and eight hours of her abduction. So in like in the episode, with, like they said, there obviously isn't the same thing with the picture day and the, the birthday day and then the, the special day, but he does take a certain amount of time with them and then kill them pretty quickly. And... Her murder, luckily, was very quickly linked to the murder of Maxwell and Hogg. Like, for this time period and for, like, the amount of technology they had, which, like, even though they were using a computer, it's kind of, like, amazing that they were they linked all these together so quickly. Uh, and it's probably why this guy did not end up being able to work for, like, more decades. Um, and the man, this was, like, a full-on manhunt for this guy. It ended up being, like, almost a decade. And um, they ran checks on anyone with sexual assault charges within 10 years. But Black had been busted in 1967. So his didn't pop because his, his only charge had been, like, you know, outside of that 10-year thing. So then, in 1988, the FBI, the old trusty FBI shows up with George Huang, probably, and they profile this guy. They say that the killer would be between 30 and 40 years old, a loner, looking a mess, not very educated. And they said that his motives for the killing is sexual. So it's like where the Yorkshire Ripper, it seemed like he just wanted to murder. This man, it was, the murder is just to get rid of the sexual you know, assault that he had done. So he had a fixation on, you know, child sex abuse material, kept mementos from his victims. And um, they also thought that, this is so horrible. They also, just spoiler alert for how horrible this is. They also thought that he probably engaged in necrophilia and, and um, did stuff to the victim's bodies before he got rid of them. So, in 1988, he tried to kidnap Teresa Thornhill, who was actually 15, but she was four foot eleven and very like petite, and that may have made him think that she was like younger than she was, because 15 is usually a little bit older than he goes for. And she was able to fight back and get away. She grabbed his balls, that loosened up his grip. Then she was like struggling. She had just left her boyfriend, and her boyfriend like was able to turn around and like see what was going on because she was struggling. So he came. She scratched his. She was able to bite his arm, like all this stuff. So Teresa Thornhill, a badass, she gets away, um, but they do connect it to the same guy. Like, it's all connected. So now, in 1990, this is nine years after Jennifer Cardi, but eight years after his last, no, his first known victim, which was Susan Maxwell, a postal worker named David Herkus was outside of his house, saw a van grab his six-year-old neighbor, just like, it's like a movie. He said he saw the van pull up and he saw the little girl like standing on the sidewalk and then he just saw her feet lift up off the sidewalk and like him pull her into the van. So he gets the van's plate number and calls the police immediately. This is wild. They arrive within six minutes. Like everything's happening very quickly with this investigation. The police get there super quick. They're all figuring out what's going on. He's describing the van to the police and then he goes, that's it. There's the van right there. And they see the same van coming back through the village and they stop the van. They arrest the driver. The missing girl's father is a cop. So he's there with all the other cops. He gets onto the van calling his daughter's name. They find her 
bound, gagged, a hood over her head, inserted headfirst into a sleeping bag, the poor thing. But she's alive. But they said she would have died if she was in there like that for 15 more minutes. She would have, like, suffocated. Um, Unfortunately, even in that insanely quick amount of time, 20 minutes, they said, he was able to sexually assault her. He had taken her to a place, and then he had taken a wrong turn and gone back through town, and that's how they busted him. So this guy... It was, it was a completely wrong turn that that got him arrested and, and caught. And when they stopped him and they pulled the girl out of the car, the guy just like super bizarre response. But he said, quote, what a day it's been. It was a rush of blood. I've always liked young girls since I was a young kid. And I think it was a rush of blood is a phrase that they use over there to just say like, oh, it's something I did impulsively. But... You know, then obviously they re- looked into this guy and it was not like a lot. Some of his, it was like we talked about in the episode. Some of his kidnappings seem to be completely opportunistic. Like he's just in a place where he sees a girl in a car with her mom going in to get cigarettes. And sometimes it was planned out. He found them, he lured them away, whatever. He had, you know, a kitten or a puppy ready. So, but they did talk about in some of the articles I read how he was like an opportunistic uh, killer. So he would sometimes just grab people that he saw. Um, And that might have been what got him busted in this case. So a search of his van found, you know, ropes, tape, hoodies, a Polaroid camera, girls' clothing, a mattress. And it says a selection of sexual aids. I don't want to know what those are. So um, just for the abduction of um, this last girl in a town called Stowe, they don't release her name, but the Stowe school girl, they call her. Just for this, he gets life in prison. So... Um, then they try to just tie him to the other stuff while he's in prison for that. So in 1994, like truly 13 years after his first uh, known murder, he goes to trial for the murders of Maxwell, Hogg, and Harper, and he is found guilty. And on his way out of the courtroom, he turns to all the detectives who have been chasing him for like over a decade and say, tremendous, well done, boys. That's what he says. So this man doesn't really get how to talk to people, I don't think, or what's normal behavior. Uh, In 2009, he is tried and found guilty for the abduction, sexual assault, and murder of Jennifer Cardi, as I mentioned. And unlike this sicko in the episode, he never admitted to any of these murders. He never was like, yep, this is me. I love these girls, and this is what I did. He just never, he He never- He pled not guilty? He pled not guilty. But then he said, good job, boys. Like, you got me. So isn't that kind of admission? Kind of. Yeah, kind of. This is what I was reading. Um, There's a guy named Ray Wire, um, who is a a big person in the the field of uh, treating sex offenders. And he interviewed Black many times between 1990 and 93. And he says that it was all about control, why he was not confessing. And Wire said, um, quote, He's the sort of person for whom it's all about power and control. Having information about what he's done gives him power. He has no desire to ease his conscience, and he's not going to give up the one thing that gives him power over the pain that his victims' families are suffering. End quote. Um, I did read that on Wikipedia, um, the Wikipedia about Robert Black. Um, I think it's probably attributed to a book, as many things on Wikipedia are, but that is where I read it. Um, And he ended up, Black ended up dying of a heart attack in jail uh, in 2016. Uh, so he he was in jail for, you know, twenty pl- over 20 years, and he was 68 when he died. And it is thought that he could be connected to a possible dozen other murders all over Euro- Europe, but none of it has been proven. Like, there's murders in in France, in Germany, Netherlands, Ireland, all kinds of places where they think that the the crimes 
involve a white van or like the their, the bodies are found in a similar fashion. So then so we won't know. Up. I know. So fucked. But because when the cop was at the scene of the crime, did he know that his daughter was the one being taken? Yeah, I think so. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a small town. So, I mean, I guess the chance of someone being, uh, their dad being a cop is high. I don't know. Um, Just to have a thing on your head and be in a sleeping bag has haunted me throughout this whole time you've been talking. I know. I know. I know. I know. But she did live. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, how crazy that he even had the time to like commit a crime. Like he just, that's how like, you know, desperate this guy is. He doesn't even try to like get somewhere like far away where he won't get caught. He's just like, I, you know, like a true sick pedophile, you know? Um, but listen, we have and an amazing- if they fucking kept him in jail earlier, all of these girls could be alive and not fucking traumatized. Like, yeah, it is so fucked up that he was jerking off on top of children and people were like, ah, oh, he's fine. Let him out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, molested? Oh, just a year. What the fuck? Yeah, the this fact that we just didn't, like, they, they they just didn't consider, like, that these kind of crimes would lead to other crimes, and it's fucked up. Because it truly would have, could have stopped. But that's the thing. They were never going to put him in jail forever, and he would have kept doing it, you know? Yeah. I'm glad he's dead. And I don't, yeah. Same Z's. Um, okay, but we have a really amazing guest interview. So, as always, we're excited to have that cleanse your palate. So, don't go anywhere. <laughs> Guys, we have an amazing guest this week. She is a prolific actor from both television and the Broadway stage. You may know her for her one of her most well-known roles, playing Terry Hatcher's daughter, Julie Meyer, on Desperate Housewives. And recently, she starred in a bunch of Lifetime movies, including Psycho Sister-in-Law and the upcoming Hall Pass Nightmare. But you knew her in today's episode as the adorable Sophie Douglas. Guys, listen to our amazing chat with Andrea Bowen. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This is like huge. I'm a huge um, Desperate Housewives fan. So I feel like, I feel like I've known you since you were a teen. Um, but I haven't. Um, but you, at, you got into like the Dick Wolf universe as like a baby. You were like five years old or something on the original, on an original yeah. Law and Order? Yeah. Um, I did, I've done... Uh, a total of three Law & Orders in the Law & Order universe. Uh, the first one I did, um, I was either five or six. Uh, it was very early in my professional career. Um, we had just moved to New York, and it is m not just me. It is me, my brother Cameron, my brother Alex, and my sister Jillian. <laughs> wow, a family affair! Family affair, yeah. We were all cast uh, to play a, a family. And I, I don't know, I think our mom was... I don't remember. There was some something, of course, happened, and then we were uh, we were grief stricken. And then I did uh, another episode of Law and Order, the original, um, the following year, I think, yeah, or something like that. Really shortly after, and that one, uh, maybe my mom was the victim of a carjacking. Something happened where she got shot because I remember they had to put blood on me. They had to put brain stuff on me, brain matter. And oh uh, and they showed me how they made it and they told me I could eat it and, you know, all the fun <laughs> memories of being on set as a kid. Uh, so by the time I did SBU, I had already done, I had already 
I'd already paid some paid some dues in the long. Did they just work. bring you wow. in for that SVU, or did you nope. like audition? Went through the whole audition process. Wow. I think that one too, because it was a larger, you know, guest star type of yeah. thing um, that they that they wanted to, you know, see. They knew me from some work in the past, but uh, it'd been a couple years, and they were like, "Let's see what you could do now." Well, it's like a very terrifying episode, but you're so adorable in it. You're like such a cute. I mean, it makes it like more powerful that you're like so cute, and you have such a like little voice and like such oh. a little voice. Yeah, so funny, <laughs> so funny to look back on now. I'm like, was I? I was really that small and had that tiny of a little voice, and yeah. <laughs> well, so watching it. The subject matter is intense, and now you're talking about smushed brains and the blood, and then in this episode, you have to recount this horrific trauma. So do they explain it to you in different ways? Did you know what you were saying? How do they kind of prep you for that, being so little? So, you know, look, I I think in 2022, I would love to say that maybe um, the— writers and or the production or the casting would have a hand in the way this information is distilled to younger people. Um, I don't know if that is the case now. I would venture to say it is still not quite there. It really falls from my experience mostly on the parents and how they or maybe the agents, but usually it's it's the parents who who kind of figure out like how do we want to approach this type of very serious subject matter with our children and um and it's kind of left there. So I uh I would say, one, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have incredible parents who were not only supportive of me getting into the arts, but also were um, very protective and uh, and still really, you know, valued putting my needs as a little one first. Um, and so they kind of operated under the idea of just we'll only tell her what she needs to know. You know, like we don't need to go deeper into the trauma that this little girl experienced. We can talk about it in terms that Andrea, at the age she's at, might understand. So my character was obviously struggling with this horrible, horrifying, disgusting thing that happened to her. But what her main, if I remember correctly, what her main sort of fear was in the interview scenes was that she broke this rule that her mom told her to not break, which was to, you know, not talk to strangers or not, you know. And that's what I, you know, remember my parents talking to me most about was you can relate to knowing, you know, when, when, what it feels like to be scared that your parents going to be upset with you. And so we tried to keep it mostly on relatable terms in that sense and not go too deep into the scary trauma part. But, um, but I did, I was aware, you know, of what was going on with this little, with this little girl. And, um. Yeah, because it's like one of the only episodes I can recall where like a little girl's like getting a pelvic exam. And I was just like, oh my God, like, what did they even tell you you were doing yeah. at like 11, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. I And I remember filming that. I remember lying on the, you know, the hospital bed and, you know, everybody was really considerate. And I think everybody was a little bit on edge because of that. You know, it, yeah. I, I am now 32 years old. I can only imagine being on a set and filming that with a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old and feeling like, yeah. oh gosh, how do we do this and be sensitive? And, you know, um, and what is this child understanding about what's happening to her? Uh, yeah. But it was such, it's it's a wonderful set to work on, I will say that. And I'm, and they're very experienced with dealing with 
heinous crimes, as we know. Isn't that in the actual like beginning of the SVU yeah. thing? Um, and so I'm sure they're really experienced with uh, tiptoeing around things or trying to be very delicate with the way they handle things. Yeah, for sure. And so is your mom an actor? Like, how did, how was it a huge family affair? How do you start young? I mean, you were on Broadway <laughs> at five years old. So how does that happen? My parents are not actors. Uh, they are artistic. Um, my dad is a musician and my mom was a dancer and a performer. Um, but no, they were out of the business. They had never done it professionally to that degree anyway. They they pursued it and, and they both had talents in those areas, but they were focused on other things. They were planning on raising their, they have six children. I'm the youngest. Um, and they were planning on raising us in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and then my older siblings all kind of <laughs> line by line started really falling in love with performing via local community theater and, you know, children's theater programming in Columbus, Ohio, nothing on a serious level. Um, but they just didn't want to pursue anything else. They didn't want to do sports. They didn't want to do This is like what they wanted to do. And it, it just trickled down throughout the family. And then at some point, someone, after my two older siblings were in a production of Oliver, um, still not in New York on that scale, but it was a touring production. And the older cast members said, well, you guys should be in New York if you want to do theater. And they planted this little seed in my older siblings' heads. And then that was it. They like begged my parents. My parents said, we'll drive. We could not afford six, eight plane tickets, I guess it would have been. Uh, so we took a family road trip to New York, um, met with a manager who expressed interest in signing us all. And my parents were like, this is moving too fast. We don't even know what we're doing. This seems crazy. We have a life. Like, what's going on? And so she agreed to send my siblings out on a couple of trial auditions so we could kind of get a sense of what that life would be like. And three of my siblings booked Broadway shows on that trip. And we oh never went God. back. God. <laughs> we never went back to Ohio. I, I know. It is It is wild That's when crazy. I say it. I I know. Okay, well, I have to jump in and tell you right now that I'm also one of six kids. <gasps> I am the oldest of six kids. Oh my gosh, where are the bookends? <laughs> yeah, and like in a million years, if I had told my mom I want to be an actor, she would have been like, great, wait until college. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. There's I know. no way. I know, wow, six kids. Well, that's so amazing that like they, they were so... Because, like, they it's had like, no idea what they were getting themselves yeah, into, but, none. If they did, they would have said, wait until college. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have two kids and I'm overwhelmed constantly. So I can't imagine six kids all trying to get into that business, all with like different auditions, different like strengths and, and weaknesses. And at that point like, too, it was wild. Wow. I mean, it was it was transitioning from Columbus, Ohio in a house that accommodated us all to a to a first a, a two-bedroom in Queens, but then a two-bedroom in Midtown Manhattan. You know, there were no compu home computers or cell phones. We had pagers. We'd have to, like, stop and call into the payphone to get all of our auditions for the day and, like, run around and stick this kid on a subway and stick that kid on a subway. And, I mean, it's nuts when I think about it. And um, I, I don't know how we all did it. I don't know how they did it. But, you know, I would, like, are. watch that. I would watch that television show. Yeah. Of, like— <laughs> <laughs> the six industry kids. When we were little, we were approached by somebody, you know, before reality TV was really a thing about like pitching this idea to us of following us around town. And my parents were like, no way, dude. Yeah. <laughs> we're not doing that. <laughs> are, you're, are, how many of the siblings are still acting? Um, let me think about this. So 
I would say five of the six are still in the industry in some facet or another. A few of them went on to pursue music. Um, some of them are more kind of behind the scenes. My uh, oldest brother is still in the Broadway scene. He he works at Book of Mormon in New York. Um, oh, wow. And then my other brother out here is still an actor and still professionally working. So five of the six of us have stayed in the arts realm. Um, what does the other one do? <laughs> uh, so she's curious. becoming a lawyer. <laughs> All right. Yeah, she's in law school. Yeah. She should become an entertainment lawyer and just rep all of you. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> she's actually been recently studying contract law. And I'm like, ooh, I should just <laughs> consult you. I follow a TikTok uh, person that's like, I read the fine print so you don't have to. And like, she reads all this stuff and helps you understand. What an angel. I mean, that is yeah. horrible. We None of us read it. We just immediately yeah. <laughs> say accept or agree or whatever. Well, I was, it's just so wild. But, um, how were the other people in school? Did you still go to school? Was it an artsy school? Was ever like, how was that? Because sometimes you hear like Taylor Swift and Christina Aguilera be like, I was bullied for my success. Yeah, right. So I was not bullied for my success. Um, I did go to, um, eventually I went to, we all went to PPAS, which is kind of a famous school in New York City. And I say famous, not because it's like this prestigious thing, uh, famous because a lot of industry people went there. It's but it's a public school. It stands for uh, Professional Performing Arts School. And then there's also PCS, which is a private performance arts school. Yeah. Um, which one of your parents was usually your more on-set person? And who was with you at SVU? Was it your mom or your dad? It was my mom. Your mom. Okay. Yeah. And how did you like your on-screen mom? And did your on-screen mom, did your regular mom feel threatened by your on-screen mom? <laughs> I think my sweet mom got very used to me having other moms um, pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, and she's wonderful. And um, my on-screen mom is actually an actress uh, named Debonair. First name Debon, <laughs> last name Air, real name. I remember I talking her to her about that. <laughs> during filming, because even though I was young, I had heard the the word before, probably being a theater kid, things are described, people are described as debonair, you know? So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. hey, that's your name. Um, <laughs> she was also very pregnant um, oh. and like actually pregnant. And it's a kind of a fun story because, so she was lovely. She was very sweet. Um, and we had maybe two scenes together, but I always remembered her because she was so nice. She was so pregnant and her name was Debonair. <laughs> and then a million years later, I went, when I was in my early 20s, I went on an arts delegation trip to Israel with a um, an organization that I work with from time to time. And we went over to Israel to do arts advocacy work and have these meetings and talk to people there. And um, her husband was on this trip, who's an actor and a director named Rob Morrow. And I didn't know this. I didn't know they were, but he was talking about his wife, Debin, at some point during the trip. And I said, wait, 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 is your wife Debin Eyre? <laughs> and he was like, yes. And I was like, she played my mom on an episode of Law and Order like, forever ago. And she was super pregnant with presumably your child. That is so funny. What a small world. Such a small world. I mean, it's like that. I'm sure you guys hear that all the time with um, Law and Order stories because- yes. It's like everybody who lived in New York who was an actor has a Law & Order experience. Well, I was going to say, I wonder if at this performing arts school, so many of the kids are like, oh, I'm heading to Chelsea Pierce. <laughs> like, I'm sure all of you were just constantly trying to play a sad kid. I mean, we did. That's the thing about when you're in a performing arts school, um, 
you know, they're used to you having to leave for auditions. And some of them have strict rules against it, uh, you know, which is kind of odd. I understand it. You don't want to compromise education. But at the same time, it's sort of odd when you're trying to get them to pursue it professionally. And then you're like, no, 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 no auditions for you. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but we'd, we'd sometimes leave at lunch and at least Chelsea Piers was in Midtown, so we could get over there really easily and be back in time to be in, you know, science class or whatever. <laughs> um, Obviously, we got to ask. Marishka, Maloney, Ice-T, Munch, you know. I mean, Belzer. I said all their names. <laughs> but who, yeah, tell us some stories or what you remember with the main cast. So I definitely had the most interaction with Marishka. And she is so lovely and so gracious and giving and considerate and present and just wonderful. Um, I would say, so by the time I did SVU, I'd been in the business for a while. Uh, I was primarily working in the Broadway community and theater. So, you know, even though I'd had a couple of Law & Order experiences before, they were smaller than what this episode was. So I would say this was my first kind of chunkier role on TV. And it definitely was an inciting event in my life in that I realized I kind of wanted to bridge over into that world, which ultimately led to me moving to LA and all that. And I do kind of attribute some of that to Marishka's demeanor and the way that she handled being the lead of a show and the way that she respected the other cast members. And she was just so wonderful. I mean, I, I can just glow on and on about her because she really made a huge impact on me. And not only that, but while I was doing that episode of SVU, I was also in a Broadway show, um, which was a musical based on the novel Jane Eyre. And um, and so I was kind of splitting my time. I'd film during the day and then I'd have to go to the theater. And she came and saw me in the show. Aww. And she came backstage and she brought me this beautiful bouquet of flowers. And, you know, I just think that really speaks to who she is. Um, but also you have to imagine being a 10-year-old actress, seeing an adult woman actress leading the show and handling herself that way and giving so much to me, it just really impacted me. And and um, I just can't say enough wonderful things about her. I saw her years later at an award show at some point over the years, like I bumped into her and, you know, I went, I never go to up to people because I'm just terribly awkward the way most of us are <laughs> dealing with that, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I tapped her on the shoulder because I, I'm sure I was there for something with Desperate Housewives. And I said, you know, I don't know if you remember me. I was a lot younger, but, and she did. And she was so sweet. And she was like, oh my God, I can't get over. You know, you're so much bigger. And, you know, it's just great. But anyway, she's wonderful. So I would say that I have the most um, memories of what it was like working with her. And they have stuck with me my whole career. Wow. That's amazing. We hear that we hear only good things about her and yeah. like everybody is so effusive about her, but this is the first time like we've heard somebody be so affected by her as a kid. Cause like, yeah. I don't know, when you're a kid, I feel like you could just be like, oh yeah, that lady was nice. Oh, is there, are there grilled cheeses today? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it's like, it's amazing to hear what an impact she made on you and that she came to your play. I know. You know, we've heard also that she's a Broadway junkie. Yeah. So I'm sure she just wanted to support you and yeah. check out another play. I know. I still I can't believe can't that believe... though. I think it's amazing that she came to see yeah. the show. And, you know, it was cool for my other castmates in the show too. They were like, um... Look yeah, who's here. that must have been such a flex. You're like, I'm 11 and I'm friends with Marisha Gahart. I know, exactly. <laughs> hair flip, hair flip. Yeah. 
I just schedule wise is so wild. So you were a kid on set all day, then at a play at night, and then and just school. learning the lines and doing it. I know. I know. It is. I, I sometimes think about my schedule between the ages of five to, you know, I mean, until, like, I mean, really my whole life. But I, I will think about that, those crucial years of when I was little, especially because I have a niece and a nephew now. And I, I, you know, I just think, wow, like, what were we doing? What were we doing? I mean, yeah. thank God for it. I'm I'm super, super grateful for all of that. But it is pretty wild when, when you think about it. So then, Lisa, I don't know if you have any more Law & Order, but I well, need no, to. I, well, let's go to Desperate. So then you book Desperate Housewives. And then your whole family moves, you and a parent, you alone. And what happens? You're a series regular at 14. Yeah. So the process to getting to Desperate Housewives was I had come out. So right, not too long after, um, I think, after that episode of SVU, um, the show that I was doing at the time in New York closed. And for the first time um, since being a professional actor, Myself and my brother, who I've mentioned, the other one who is also on multiple Law & Orders, were not in shows during what was pilot season. And our manager was like, you got to go to LA if you want to get into TV. You got to go to LA. Just give it a whirl. So my dad brought my brother and I out. And it was just the three of us. And uh, we came out for a pilot season. Um, and I I got a show. It was not Desperate Housewives, but it was another ABC show. And uh, that shot the pilot um, in Canada. Went back to New York, was doing a workshop of a show. Show got picked up. Great. Moved the family out to LA. Everybody except for the two oldest siblings who were off now in college and working. And so moved the rest of us out. So four kids, two parents, two dogs, uh, out to LA. Show gets canceled. <laughs> so then oh we're like, God. oh, no. Um, what do we do? Uh, kind of a naive decision, I guess. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, and, but then the following pilot season, Desperate Housewives came along. And so then got that and then uh, had a good feeling that it would get picked up. We all kind of, the whole cast talks about it during the pilot. We just, sometimes you work on things and you're like, I have no idea. And you never know with this industry, you know, if something's going to go or not. Right. That one felt different. It felt like this is going to be, this is going to do something. We didn't know what it was going to do. We didn't know it was going to go on to be as successful as it was, of course. But um but then that got picked up and ran for eight seasons and out in LA, I stayed. God, it was just like such a huge show. I watched, it was like appointment television for me. I would like order food from this Vietnamese place every Sunday and like sit on my couch and watch that show. And I'm just wondering, like, so did you, were you right away like, oh my God? Or I mean, I guess you'd been in the business for so long, but like that was the first like huge right? Like that show was like a big thing. Yeah. It, it was weird. I mean, it was definitely weird and foreign. And like you said, I'd been in the business for a while, but as, as I'm sure other people you've talked to since Law & Order is such a New York concentrated thing, you know, the theater world is, it operates very differently than television. And so even though I had been lucky enough to be a part of three Broadway shows at that point, this, the scale of being on a television show that is successful is just different. Oh, and actually, now that I'm saying this, to tie in these two things, I remember, I remember when we premiered, I think it was our, it was either our first episode or our second episode. 
we didn't, we, we could not, no one could believe the ratings that we got in our first, in our early episodes, because it was just uncommon. You have to find your footing, you know, even, even shows that have a great first episode premiere, the numbers are still not, you know, they're not like really breaking any records. They're still like, you're finding your audience and it's strong and it's great. And it looks like we're going to go. But anyway, one of the things they said to us on set, they came to us at lunch, we were filming and they said, the numbers are in from last week's episode you guys were number one for the week. And someone said, we beat Law and & Order. <laughs> and I don't know why they use that as the metric, but somebody yelled out, we beat Law & Order. So that ties those two things together They're quite just nicely. So, they probably always have had solid ratings. That's why it's been on for 20 million years. I know. Um, that's so funny. Yeah. So, wow. So how was, um, I mean, how was having Terry Hatcher for your on-screen mom? Uh, wonderful. Um, I really, I really lucked out. I've, I've lucked out consistently in the, the women that I've worked with. And I've had a very, I've had a very fortunate career in that from a young age, I was working with powerhouse women, leading shows, leading Broadway shows, leading, you know, television shows, and then went on to be on a show for a long time that was dominated by women, yeah. um, which is rare, you know, and and really showed me kind of what was possible for me as an actor and just sort of, you know, formed the way that I operate in the industry and how I look at it. Um, Terry's fantastic. We hit it off from, from day one and... Um, and just, you know, remain close to this day. And I just think she's she's the best. I met her at a party like three years ago and was like, hello. Like, I was like trying so hard to keep it together. But I was like, I've been watching you in so many things my entire life. And I was just like, oh, hi, great to meet you. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I feel like, I don't think I could, I don't remember what we, t- I think we talked about I don't know. We were talking about something for a little while, but she was super nice. Yeah. And I can see, she has like a warmth about her, you yeah. know, like I think you can tell that on television and then it like translates in real life. Yeah. Like, she's very warm. She is very funny and, um, and she's just great. She's just great. Was there ever any, um, sibling like rivalry or fighting over the fact that like you guys were all in the same business? I would say there is, there was never any um, negative competition elements uh, between my siblings and I. Um, We were each other's cheerleaders and each other's support system. I will say that I think I had a better shot at growing up and turning out, hopefully, fingers crossed, semi-sane (laughs) <laughs> um, because I had so many siblings and because I had a big family who yeah. really kept me in line, you know? Um, and so, no, there really wasn't any of that. There was really just commiseration more, you know, when things didn't go our way. It was, like, nice to have a built-in person who got it and and yeah. could relate and also knew what it was like to do it as a kid. Um, I, I know people who grew up and started young and you know, had two parents, but then just themselves, you know? And I, mm-hmm. I I always thought, God, that must have been weird, you know? It's like you need a little support system. And we had we had a thriving support system within my own family. Um, yeah. Many members. Did you guys, like, so. run lines together and stuff and memorize? And yeah. And super cute. Okay. Yeah, we definitely did. <laughs> um, we totally did and still do. Um, uh, my dad worked with us a lot. I would, you know, read lines with him a lot. Um, and... Yeah, but my brother Cameron is, I work with him all the time still. Like when I get, you know, an audition or I am about to film something and I want to do a little bit of 
like prep work on it. He's still somebody I go to. So that's amazing. So nice. I know it does. It's, it is nice. It's very nice. Yeah. My siblings and I all do completely different stuff. So really? I wouldn't even know what the, but the, there was always like great. Yeah, none of you overlap. Yeah. None of but you the, overlap at all. Yeah. And we all That's do so interesting. Different what's the things. age? What's the age between the first and the last? So it's like um, I'm nine years older than my oldest. Yeah, my youngest brother. It's the so same. We, yeah. We're like one, two, three. Me and my brother and sister are one, two, three. And then there's like five years and then twins and then the youngest. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we're and my mom wanted to have more after she's psychotic. My mom too. I feel like <laughs> once you start, once you pass four, it's like a drug. I don't know. It's like tattoos. Yeah. yeah they just yeah. want to get more. Yeah. <laughs> all, all six of us were born, yeah, in nine years. So uh my sister in 81 and me in 90. And she's like, yeah. boom, boom. So boom. I'm like more, I'm closer, I'm closer to your sister's age. Yeah. And then you're you are a little bit younger than my youngest brother. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. crazy. Um, but that's like, I what a cool, like, I mean, it is nice to hear about little kids that also are in the business and then grow up to be normal and not like totally crazy. And it sounds like your parents really had their heads on straight about the whole thing too. Yeah, I think they, um, I really think that they did a pretty remarkable job um, trying to create a, a safe and, and, you know, I try not to use the word like normal because what is that, right? What is yeah, normal? Yeah. But but a safe and and grounded family dynamic between all of us, even though our circumstances were a little extraordinary. You know, it was mm-hmm. like we had this weird dichotomy happening all the time where it was like at home, it was just very much your regular family, except for the fact that there were so many kids and no rooms to be in. Uh, but then outside <laughs> of our apartment, there was so much going on all the time. And somehow they struck a, a very nice balance between us all. And we are all very close. And um, yeah. So great. What's coming up? Um, is there anything that we should look out for? Something you'd like to tell our listeners sure. to watch? Sure. So I just um, finished filming a, I guess it would be a thriller for Lifetime. Um, and I think there's a, probably a crossover audience between Law & Order fans yeah. and Lifetime movie fans. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, and so maybe that'll be of interest. And uh, I don't know when it's going to air. Um, I think believe it will be this year, um, sometime over the next few months. It was directed by Marla Sokoloff, who I oh, assume yeah. was on oh The Practice. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if she was on Law & Order. I would guess she was at some point. Well, she was on The Practice. She so, I mean, I don't know, like another law show, but... Yeah. And she was, like, the bad girl on Full House. Oh, yeah. Gia. Yes, Tanner that's was right. friends with. Gia. You're yeah, right. She was, like, had so oh much God, attitude. I forgot about that. I know. And I was obsessed with her. Awesome. Yeah, that's fun. She's so great and um and we had the best time working together and also talking about like growing up in this business and then we're yeah. you know branching off to do other things and so we had a lot of fun we filmed that lunch i guess in late may into june um and so that should be out sometime soon um, and what did you say that was called i think so they always have like a working title and then they have oh, okay. what they eventually become named as and i okay. think i think it's they're cementing it as dun 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 hall pass nightmare. Hall Ooh. pass nightmare. Ooh. Is this about somebody getting to have sex with their hall pass? It would be me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> kind of scandalous <laughs> for lifetime. A little racy. I know. Like very um indecent proposal for yeah. lifetime. I yeah. love that. Yeah. So um we had a good time. 
That's amazing. Yeah, so I saw like you've been doing some Lifetime stuff. Do you do Hallmark stuff as well? I did one. Uh, oh, okay. I did one in my early 20s or maybe when I was 19, 19 or 20. Um, and I played a paraplegic, a girl who was a professional horse rider um, and got bucked off her horse and became a paraplegic. But then through equine therapy and romance, uh, she was able Learned to, spoiler to walk alert, again? was able to walk again. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. The power know, of love and horses. Magic. I love it. I know. Well, I cannot wait to see Hall Pass Nightmare. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds too. amazing. My grandma too. But then I told her, I was like, there might be some parts you have to like not watch. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, it's Lifetime. And I was like, yeah, I know, but maybe I'll, yeah. just, I'll watch lifetime it first. Is, it's Lifetime in 2022, grandma. Exactly. They got to keep up with the times. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for, Lisa, I don't know, do you have any last This was very fun. No, I questions? had a great time. Well, I was just going to say, I did see that you were on King of the Hill and what yeah. a great show. And that's so cool to be a cartoon. Yeah, um, <laughs> I did. I was, I, that was great. That was fun because um, once you're in that world, you kind of just are, I don't want to say a pitch hitter because that sounds like I'm really like singing, tooting my own horn. But I mean, you're just brought in when they need, you know, people to come in to play a teenage voice or to play a, a young woman's voice or to yeah. play, you know, a boy's voice, like whatever. And so I got I got into that show. I forget what the first episode I did, but then they'd, you know, call every now and again and I'd pop in and do a few. And that is one of the shows where the few shows that where they um, used to record everybody kind of at the same time. Uh, so you'd be actually in the studio as opposed to just being by yourself and doing oh, your own wow. lines. You would get to be with other people in your scene. Um, and it was such an amazing cast that it was always so fun. Uh, oh, that's cool. I wonder if that's like why, like a secret to why it's so been so successful and why people love it so much is like there's actual like chemistry going on between the yeah, people. It could be. It could be. It definitely feels more like a play or a lot, you know, live performance than, than, because yeah. I mean, I love the animated world and I've been lucky enough to do a lot of voice work throughout my career. Uh, but you, there's always a difference when you're getting to read with the person who's in the scene with you and then when you're just alone imagining sure. kind of what they might be doing. Um, yeah. So it probably is part of why it's such a special show. Yeah. Well, this was amazing. Thank I'm you. so excited we got to talk to you. Thank yeah, this my... is one of the episodes we've been dying to do since we started the pod. It's a favorite of ours. It's like scary and so thrilling. Oh, Kara, we didn't. Ask. Is it your little hand in the beginning with the car? Oh, yeah. Did they put you under the car? It's not my hand. Okay. Oh. It is not my hand. Um, I don't know whose little hand that is. Unless I'm crazy, I, I I'm gonna have to ask my mom because she would remember. But I am pretty sure that I that they were. It was on this sheet to film a certain day, and we didn't get to it. And they were like, "We'll just we'll just pick it up some sometime they else." They grabbed it like from maybe some other kid from like a like <laughs> because I was like. You know, we, to have you there for a full shooting day or night or whatever in cold New York just for your little hand to pop up. I know, but oh it's pretty God. tragic when you see that little hand. Oh, Lisa, that was my most important question. I'm really glad I you did not let me forget it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, Kara. <laughs> Always have your back. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank yeah, you. You're so impressive. Wow. She's so fun. She's cool. I mean, to find a family who hasn't been fucked up from child acting, that's... Uh, I know. I'm happy for her, her family, the choices they've made. Yeah. Seems like she's really crushing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. To be um, a Broadway... I mean, she could be a Leah Michelle-style bitch, and she chose not to. And she chose... She chose kindness. Um, 
This episode is a, I I don't know why I like it or like call it a classic, but it really is. And I guess what I've learned is you have to look at every license plate forever or Mariska Hargitay will be pissed. You know what's crazy is I used to like memorize license plates all the time thinking if that, if that does something in a crime, I'm going to remember. And I would like make little mnemonic devices being like cats love food, CLF, like if that was like the license plate, you know, like, and I would always try to remember them all the time. Like when I was like a, like a preteen, like, like just thinking of all the crime shows I'd watch, I'd be like, I'm going to be the witness that remembers that license plate number. Guess what? I don't even, I don't even know my own license plate number right now. I think I could tell you the first two digits. (laughs) I, um, we were driving through Pennsylvania from Western New York to get back into the city and we, uh, passed the crime scene in the woods. Whoa. There was like detectives in suits and then there was someone with a CSU tank, like a crime scene investigation, CSI. There was like people in CSI t-shirts, suits, and they were on the edge of the highway, like into the woods in Pennsylvania. So. Damn, I wonder what they found. I know, right? Um, We were trying to Google and stuff, but it seemed like an active investigation. So like we couldn't find anything in the news. So I don't know. Wow, 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 wow. That's exciting. Um, It is. It's sad. And then, oh, you posted this and I didn't even see it until then, but uh, my friend Marie Faustin went viral with that SVU video. So funny. And he he gave her a t-shirt. I don't know if you saw, but he brought her merch, but she said she cannot date a cop. That that, there's absolutely no way. Yeah. Um, She's so funny. That video is so funny. So many of you have sent us that video of the girl who goes on a date with a detective and mentions like SVU and stuff. And uh, Well, because I asked for a photo and she was like, no, 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 I met him in the wild. I don't have any, any photos of him. Oh, so yeah. She yeah, met him out in the world. See, but... And he tricked her because he smelled good, she said. Yeah, so I saw her last night, got the scoop, but she is, she will not be dating a cop. Yeah, I understand that. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but my sister sent me her video too. Everyone was, it's like fun. Yeah, She's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, do we have any takeaways post-mortem for the episode countdown? There's not really, it's not really the kind of episode where you learn anything that you didn't well, puppies, already know. Puppies, puppies. Yeah, I mean, you teach Puppies kids, are the new candy. Yeah, don't let kids uh, get lured away. Don't eat candy, corn only. Oh, also, who is taking child photos? Let's double check them. Triple check them. Let's get surveillance on anyone that does school photos. Yeah, for There's sure. There's got to be a pedophile in every district. I can't imagine who else is doing school photos. <laughs> well, people who do photography and need to pay their bills. And pedophile. This is how I feel about, you know, it's like the step-parent thing. It's not fair of me, but if you're a step-parent and you're a man, I assume you're doing it to get to the child. <laughs> She's joking, Prove me everyone. Wrong. I'm not She's joking. J- <laughs> I ain't joking, bitch. <laughs> and I ain't joking. Um, uh, all right. That is a perfect segue into this week's What Would Sister Peg Do? Um, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about puppies and stuff like that because for this week's What Would Sister Peg Do, which is our uh, weekly segment where we talk to you guys, uh, give you guys an article, a organization, um, something that, a book, something that can help you flesh out a little bit more about what you uh learned or saw in this week's episode or what we talked about. Um, A lot of people rely like so heavily on stranger danger, but there's like so many other 
ways of protecting your kids against child predators. And uh, I just, I found this, uh, there's this website called verywellfamily.com. And uh, it's just like a bunch of like nurses and and doctors and people that get together and talk about parenting stuff and write articles about parenting stuff. And uh, everything's like, you know, seems like fact-checked and legit to me. So uh, this article that I found there was written by Catherine Lee, and it's called Protecting Against Child Predators. And it just had some interesting uh, ways on how to educate your kids against child predators, like teaching your kids how to say no. And instead of focusing on full stranger danger, knowing that there's all, all, like so many kids are often victimized by people that they do know. So it's not necessarily, even though in this episode, you know, there it was full stranger danger. Well, did you see um, the most recent snatching? by the way, on, on yeah. the internet. There yeah. was like a girl playing outside her house and some guy tried to snatch her and she like kept, like she fought him off. Oh my but God, I love But it all got caught that. on the ring camera. I love that. Good girl. Good. We got to yeah, teach our like kids. Yells. Yeah, we got to yeah. teach our kids. So anyway, this is, um, you can check out the website, verywellfamily.com. Uh, and their pet parenting articles are all medically reviewed. And uh, the link to the actual article will, of course, be in our show notes and in our stories. And all of our What Would Sister Peg Do stories are saved in a highlight on our Instagram called WWSPD if you ever want to check out the resources that we recommend. Thank you so much for that, Kara. We need to protect our children. And next week, the episode will be Rhodium Nights. Season 13, episode 23. We're jazzed as fuck. Um, and so happy that you guys listen. And we'll see you soon. Next week, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, come see us on tour. And um, we love you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedappod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedappod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.